Good morning, friends. I am so thankful to once again be with you in the company of the redeemed and those forgiven by God, loved by Him, called by Him, kept by Him. What a blessing. Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know isn't true. Although few would state it as Mark Twain did, many may um, agree with him. Seems that the world, to the world at least, faith and truth are almost opposites in their minds. They think that if it's true, faith isn't necessary or required to believe it. And if faith involved, then it doesn't need to be true necessarily. Believe what you want, in other words. The condition of faith in our society is on life support, and even worse, the condition of truth. Things that are said today under the guise of truth are are shocking to us who believe the scriptures. Of course, we believe differently about all of these things, but I speak of the prevailing opinions of the day. Few would agree with us that truth is knowable, let alone absolute. I don't know if you've ever gotten into a conversation with somebody at work or across the fence in your backyard about absolute truth, but it usually doesn't go too well if your neighbors or coworkers are worldly. Our culture would say that truth is subjective. What is true for you may or may not be true for me. That's subjective truth. These opponents of absolute truth would also claim for the most part that faith, especially the Christian faith, is old wives' tales and religious sentimentalism. We would agree or disagree also with this. We believe and teach that truth is noble and absolute. We actually believe that the teaching contained in the Word of God is absolute truth for all time for all people. Truth has been revealed to us by God himself in the scriptures. That's what we embrace. We also believe that faith is the vehicle supplied by God to fully embrace his truth and apply it to our souls and our daily lives. Without the gift of faith, no one will believe. So we must have truth and faith in our Christian experience. Without absolute truth, we are lost in the fog of human opinion. Without faith, we cannot know God or please him. So both are mandatory. We've been working our way through a sermon series of the one-chapter books in the New Testament, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, and now today, Jude. As you remember, the epistle of Philemon uh, was an amazingly potent book, in my opinion, because it, it emphasizes the importance of forgiveness in our Christian relationships, of looking to other with tender-hearted eyes and examine ourselves in light of our own failure. The epistle of, epistles of John, rather, second and third John, and Jude emphasize this issue of truth that I've been speaking about and how we as Christians and churches need to be guided by the truth and nothing else. And be wary of anyone that might bring something else to the surface uh, for us to be guided by or follow. To give you some insight into this small but important epistle of Jude, 
uh, I'd like to make sure that your Bible is open to that short book and uh, follow along as I do my best to unpack it for you. But I want to mention right off the bat uh, for us to consider the humility of the author, Jude. Look at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So he identifies himself as the brother of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, which makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus. And yet he calls Jesus his master. He identifies himself as a slave. That's the word, doulos. We, our translators soften that a bit by translating it servant. But in fact, the word is meant and is slave. I'm a slave of my brother Jesus, is what Jude is saying. Um, Jude was one of Jesus' siblings that didn't initially believe that their brother was anything special. You remember this in John's gospel? Uh, they even ridiculed him and told people that Jesus was crazy. They came into Jerusalem once to get him because he was crazy and take him back home. But now we see here that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, has been miraculously converted by the Holy Spirit, was a leader in the church, and used by God to contribute to the Holy Scriptures. What a story that must be. I'd like to hear that when I get to heaven. Seems that uh, Jude began his letter with the intention of encouraging his readers in their common salvation. Look what he said in verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about a common salvation, interruption, something changed, I find it necessary to encourage you to contend with the faith. I was going to write you about this, but now I see that I need to write you about that. And so the direction of, of Jude's letter changed when he picked up the inspired pen to write to these beloved people. So the Holy Spirit was involved in what flowed from the pen of Jude and it's not only applicable to the people who received this letter originally, it's applicable to us. That's the way scripture is, right? It's, it certainly has an original audience with the, the authorial intent of that author or book. And yet it applies to us, those who pick up the book, you know, 20 centuries later. And so we have here Jude's interest in encouraging his readers to contend for the faith. Why? Well, because there are threats against the faith, and he is saying that the threats are coming from within, not from without. And isn't that the case through Christian history, through church history, that the most serious threats to the faith have come from within the church? Yes, Jude here, at the beginning of church history, identifies this reality. And I think we can learn from his observations, inspired observations. Evidently, these enemies of Christ had snuck into the church, were causing serious problems. He says, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They were, they were sneaking into the church intentionally to disrupt the unity of the Spirit, to disrupt the teaching of the gospel, to try to undermine the work of God in his church. As bold as that sounds. And so we have a pertinent letter that we ought to spend some time thinking about. Unfortunately, 
I've designated only two Sundays to this, and I'm going to do my best to um, unpack it for you so that you have uh, a measure of understanding and application. Uh, but we could spend more time here, as you know, but we're not going to because I've been getting pressure from the people sitting next to you to start Colossians. And so uh, we're going to do that, Lord willing, December 3rd. But here we are uh, wrapping up this short sermon series on one chapter of books of the New Testament. Hopefully that'll take place next week. We'll conclude next week. So let's begin in the first four verses. And I've titled this section, How to Deal with Christ's Enemies. What are we going to do with these folks who are obviously enemies of Christ? Who are in the church? Well, the first thing I want you to see from verses 3 and 4, and also referenced in verses 17, and 19, 17 through 19, that there will always be enemies of Christ. There has never been a time that there hasn't been enemies of Christ, including the original couple, Adam and Eve, had enemies of Christ in their midst. Look at verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Who are they? They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this for a minute. Who are the enemies of Christ? Well, he tells us here, Jude does, first of all, that the enemy of Christ is an immoral person. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That's a, a biblical word that means immorality. Sensuality is immorality. They're ungodly people who say the grace of God, because he's so good and so kind, gives us freedom to live like we want, including sexual immorality. You might ask, well, doesn't Jesus save immoral people? And of course, the answer is a resounding yes, right? He saves us. But once he saves immoral people, he begins to do what? Sanctify immoral people. He turns them from immoral people who practice immorality into pure people who practice morality. This is what the gospel does for people. This is what God does for people. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed this, and I'm sure this is familiar, this passage that I'm about to read is familiar to many of you. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's kind of scary. You know, I, I've been unrighteous in the last 24 hours. Uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Has anybody been excluded yet? In this room? Uh, he didn't mention me. Anybody want to say that? Okay, well, we have a problem facing us until we read the next verse. 
And such were some of you, past tense. In other words, the grace of God does something for us immoral people. Right? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what you were, but the gospel has effect on people. It changes them. Jude 19, if you'll turn the page real quickly. It says, it is these, speaking of these same people, who caused division, right? You can imagine that. Immoral people in the church trying to defend their immorality as though it's a freedom given by the grace of God would cause division, as you can imagine. And look what he calls them. They're worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Meaning, they don't have the Holy Spirit, meaning they're not saved. <laughs> so, this word worldly is where I want your attention to be for a moment. A lot of translations, maybe the one you're holding, translates that word natural. Worldly in the ESV is translated natural in other translations. Now back to verse 10. Look at verse 10. These people, same people, blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And so we have here interesting words used that we're familiar with. All right, so verse 19 uses the word natural or worldly. Verse 10 uses the word instinctively, like unreasoning animals. In our culture, when we hear words used by immoral people to justify living the way they want, they use these words. It came natural to me, don't they? This was instinctual for me, as if it makes it okay to respond to their natural instinctual drives. I don't know about you, but whenever I give in to natural instinct, I usually get in trouble. Is that the case with you? Well, <laughs> they think that responding to instinct or to natural desire is a good thing. But according to God's word, instinct and natural desires are the very things that separate us from God. And, it's, and it is, if it is our habit to live by our natural instincts, verse 19 said, we're devoid of the Spirit. We don't have the Holy Spirit, which is required to be saved. So if you find yourself living by your natural instincts, run to Jesus and plead for repentance. I've heard people say that we should just follow our hearts. Have you ever heard that? Well, just follow your heart. That is some of the worst advice you can ever give to anybody. Your heart is the problem. We have all evil hearts. We're born with them. Don't ever encourage your children or your neighbor or anybody to follow their heart. It will lead them to destruction if they do that. Our rebellion against God originates in our hearts. So... If you ever find yourself resisting the exposition of God's word, 
You don't like something you're hearing on Sunday morning, you've got to ask yourself why. Is it because the expositor is in error or your heart is hard? Which is it? Could be either. But if the word is being exposited and defended, high likelihood it's not the expositor. The particular people that Jude was referring to here were in some kind of position of authority in the local church he was writing to. They were teaching that God's grace allows sensuality. Uh, but Jude said, no, that's perversion. That does not honor God. That is not in line with the gospel. The gospel, when it is received, changes things. And so we can't say, as these were saying, well, because God is so good and gracious, I can live however I want. No, you cannot. Jude says that's perversion. Secondly, the enemies of Christ are those who deny the truth. Those who deny the truth. Look at verse 4 again. It tells us that certain people have snuck into the church who claim that the grace of God allows immorality, and then what do they do? They deny the Master and Lord Jesus Christ, which means they deny the truth. Jesus himself said he was the truth. So if they're denying the Master and Lord Jesus Christ, they're not only um, living immorally, they're denying the truth. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you, if you deny Jesus, you're denying the truth. And what does it mean to deny Jesus? You, you deny his true identity. You say, no, he was a great teacher, but he certainly wasn't God. No, he was a good man, but mm, I'm not going to say he was divine. That's denying the truth because you're denying the master. Or saying things like, well, he, he, his death on the cross was a, a good example of, of dying for a cause, of, of sacrificing for a cause. No, that's not why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin and yours. That's denying the truth. And so when you deny the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, you're denying the truth. This doesn't mean that you're making statements necessarily about denying his person and work. You don't have to stand up and write an article to the editor to deny the truth. It simply means that you're not submitting to his divine authority in your life or placing your eternal destiny fully into the hands of Jesus Christ. That is denying the truth just as much as making a public statement. So you can deny the truth simply by running by your own agenda. That's a lot more accessible to us, isn't it? That's, that's something that we might likely do. And maybe something we do regularly. Well, I don't like this part of the Christian faith or this part of Paul's teaching, so I'm going to ignore that. Well, there you go. You've just denied the truth. You see how serious this gets quickly? The enemies of Jesus Christ believe and promote that because God is good and gracious, you can live however you want and believe whatever you want and still call yourself a Christian. 
Judah's saying, not so fast. What you believe affects how you live. You cannot honestly believe that you have a relationship with God and live however your instincts direct or believe whatever you want about Jesus. If you do those things, believe whatever you want and live however you want, you are devoid of the Spirit. Is that clear? That's what Jude is saying. Is that pertinent? Oh boy. It's happening all around us. So the first way to deal with Christ's enemies is to recognize that they exist and not to be influenced by what they teach or believe. Secondly, the way we deal with Christ's enemies, according to Jude, is that we have to delight that Christ's enemies cannot affect our status. We ought to delight that the enemies of Christ cannot affect our status. And where do we find our status as recipients of this letter, readers of this letter now? Where does Jude mention our status? In verses 1 and 2. Look at these. I think this is going to be a great encouragement to you. As much as the enemy of Christ may upset us and cause us trouble, I want you to be encouraged by what you hear here uh, that the schemes of the enemies of Christ to upend and disturb our faith are futile. Do you know Christ? Are you in the family of God? Has he affirmed that to your heart? Then you, you will not be affected by what the enemies of Christ do or say. Let me show it to you. Verse 1. What does it say? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... There's the first status that defines you, describes you. We are called. And Jude isn't referring to a general invitation to all sinners like I do regularly when I invite you to turn to Jesus from your sin or, or like you might do when your mom calls you to dinner. Hey, why don't you come for dinner? No, nah, I'm not hungry. Why don't you come to Jesus? I don't need him. I'm fine. It's not that kind of call. No, the kind of call that I just referred to is often rejected. Why don't you turn from your sin? No, I like it. That's a rejection of an outward call, a call that I make, a call that you might make to your children or to your neighbors. The, the call that Jude is talking about is an effective call. It's a life-changing call. The kind of call that is rejected is the kind of call that Jesus referred to in Matthew 22. He said, many are called, but only few are chosen. He preached to how many people? Hundreds of thousands. How many followed him to the cross? Twelve? Maybe fifteen? If you include his mom? It's not much of a following. What happened to all the call? It was not effective, spiritually speaking. So Jude isn't talking about that external call. He's referring to a special, effective, and internal call by which God brings to life a dead soul that Paul referred to in Ephesians chapter 2. You remember this. He said in Ephesians 2, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Not asleep, dead. 
You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, brought you to life. How did he do that? The same way he did it to Lazarus. Come forth. Lazarus didn't sit there and go, no, I'm kind of comfortable here. No, he came forth. It was an effective call. Theologians call it the effectual call. It actually has a result. If you've been called, you come to Christ. The use of the word called in verse 1 emphasizes the free and uninfluenced choice of God in selecting those who will believe. So if you're sitting here this morning embracing Christ for all that he is, at one point in your history you were called. And it's not that you're hearing the voice of God. No, you're experiencing the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He flipped the switch and the gospel became interesting to you. And you received it. You responded to the effectual call. That's your status, Christian. You've been called. Look what's next. You're loved. To those who've been called, beloved in God. Jews writing to those who were called, then those who are loved. Are you thinking, well, doesn't God love everybody? The answer is, yes, he does. He loves everyone that he created. But it's a creator love of his creation. But the saving love that Jude's referring to, that the Apostle John speaks of, that Paul speaks of regularly, the saving love, that love that actually gets you to heaven, started in eternity past. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of. Before the foundation of the world, he predestined you, or he chose you, unto himself. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. In love he predestined you, is what Paul wrote. So it is God's choice to save certain individuals instead of allowing them to continue down the path of their own pursuits that ends in destructions. Why? Because of his divine, eternal, saving love. You're sitting here, if you're in Christ, because God loves you. Hope that encourages your heart. Let me explain the word loved a little more. If you have something to write with, I would encourage you to underline, circle that word love, because it's a special word. Um, it, it, and the tense is critically important, the tense that Jude used. He used the perfect passive tense. It's a participle, really. And he used that to communicate that God has placed his love on believers in eternity past that's the perfect, the perfect passive. It, it's something that happened to you. You didn't do it. God did it to you. He, he chose you in eternity past. And that choice, that love of God placed on you in eternity past, has effect up until today and into the future. That's what the perfect passive use of the word love does. It communicates that it is something that began in eternity past but goes into eternity future. And it's got nothing to do with you. God did it to you. The word in. Look at the word in 
seems like a strange way to say that God loves you. But Jude says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Why, why not just say loved by God instead of loved in God? Do you see the, the weirdness of it, the, the terminology? Well, let me explain to you why it's important. Jude used the word in. So he, he used that word in God the Father to demonstrate the sphere in which you're loved. You are loved because you are in Christ. You are in the family of God because you are loved. That's the sphere. It's not, you are, certainly you are loved by the Father. Ephesians 1 makes that clear. But here Jude is saying, here is the status of you who are called. You are in Christ and that's where you're loved. It's, it's a comment about your security that will never change. So, we are called, here's your status, you're called, you're loved, and look at the next verb there, kept. You're kept for Jesus Christ. This is a precious thought, Christian friend. Be attentive. We are kept for Jesus Christ. You just got your pen out? Circle the word for. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot. It means that our life, our health, our strength, our eternal well-being are being kept and saved for someone else. In this case, the glory of Jesus Christ. You're saved for him. Which means, by default, you're not kept for you. You're kept for him. Let me unpack this joyful, motivating thought. We are not kept, protected, and saved for our personal pleasure. It's not about you getting to heaven, although that's important to all of us. No, Jude is saying we are kept or set aside or protected or saved for the glory of Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, kept for him. The reason God saved you is to reserve you to be a part of a love gift made up of all those who are being saved. God the Father has set us aside, put us into a category to be given to God the Son to demonstrate his eternal and divine love for his Son. You are set aside, kept for Jesus Christ. It's like, I don't know if they still do this or not. You go to a store and you lay something away. You know, because I don't know why you would do that. You don't have a credit card or something. I don't know. You, you lay it away. And they put it behind the shelf, and you're supposed to be able to come back in a week and say, hey, I got five more bucks. And you pay for this thing, and they give it to you. That's kind of what's going on here. You've been laid away because at one point you're going to be, in the future, going to be given to Jesus Christ with all others who have been laid away to worship and praise him throughout eternity. Paul talks about this in his letter to Titus. John talks about it in his, apost in his epistles and in the Gospel of John. You are laid away for Christ Jesus. So, we've been called, we've been loved, we've been handpicked by God the Father to be saved and given to the Son. Listen to these 
verses from John in case you're not really believing what I'm saying. Okay? Jesus said in John 6, 38 and 39, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing or no one of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. We are kept for Jesus Christ. None will be lost. All who were given by the Father to the Son will be saved. <clears throat> Look now with me to the favorite benediction of most Christians in all the New Testament, verses 24 and 25 of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. He is going to keep you throughout all eternity. I don't know about you, but that is wonderful news to me. Right? Nothing can unkeep you. We've, we've read Romans 8, right? Neither height nor depth nor powers nor dominions nor angels nor authorities can separate you from the love of God. Not even death can separate you from the love of God. So these three qualifiers, being called, loved, and kept, are used by Jude to establish the state of being of those who are not affected, eternally at least, by any enemy of Christ. So we can move forward through the Christian life with confidence. <clears throat> Does this bring you joy? It ought to. Thirdly, the way we deal with enemies is to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith, see this in verses 3 and 4, which exalts the grace and mercy of God. When you contend for the faith, you're exalting the grace and mercy of God. And this is a command that you're to contend, and it's given by the Holy Spirit through Jude. Um, he, he didn't say con contend for your version of eschatology, although we might want to do that. He didn't say contend for your favorite mode of baptism. He didn't say contend for your style of preferred music that we would sing. He didn't say contend for whether or not you ought to tithe. He said contend for the faith once delivered to the apostles or by the apostles. It's important that you know he's not saying contend for your faith. He's saying contend for the faith. The Christian faith, that, that faith that was brought by Jesus to this planet, taught to his disciples who became apostles, who taught it to the world. Contend for that faith. It was once delivered by the apostles. <clears throat> this, this means that we're to support and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was given to us in the scriptures. This is a faith that does not change. It is complete regardless of any current theological debate. The word contend is the word from which we get our word to agonize. Contending is to be strenuous, in other words. It, it's to take effort. It's, to, it's like an athletic endeavor. It, it needs our focus. It needs our sweat, blood, and tears. Contend for the faith. It's not something that's easy or something that we ought to leave to the professionals, for example. Well, that's why we send missionaries. That's why we have a pastor. 
Go contend with the faith, John. All right? No. We must contend for the faith not because we agree with it or because it represents our conservative values. We contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints because it's true and essential for our relationship with God. Where do we contend? Is there a contending arena someplace? There happens to be one. You live in it. It's called your home. Contend for the faith in your home. Contend for the faith before your children, before your spouse, with any guests you bring in. Contend for the faith. Support, defend, explain the faith. Wherever you find yourself, there's another arena. It's called where you work. All these places where you find yourself throughout your daily life is the arena of faith. It's where we ought to contend for it. Explaining, defending, supporting, making much of the faith. <clears throat> Here's a true Civil War story that will illustrate why it's important for you to contend and not just leave it to your elders and pastors. Uh, the first battle of the Civil War was fought at Bull Run near Washington, D.C. You're going to think this is not true, but it's true. Uh, the residents of Washington, D.C. knew the battle was coming, and so they rode out to watch. They took their blankets and their picnic lunches, literally sat on the hill and watched the battle rage between the North and the South at Bull Run. That's not contending. <laughs> That's spectating. We are not to be spectators in the faith, in the Christian life. We are contenders, fighters, infantrymen, or women. Run to the battle. Why? Because we are commanded to contend for the faith. Secondly, seen in verses 5 through 16, what will happen to Christ's enemies? What's going to happen to them? Well, first thing I think we need to do here is what Jude writes, and that is remember how Christ dealt with his enemies in history. We know these stories. We, we heard them in Sunday school. We read them to our children during our family worship time. How did Christ deal with his enemies in history? Verses 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, in other words, they had heard it before. You've heard it before, Sun Valley Church. I want to remind you, he says in verse 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroys those who did not believe. Keep in mind that story. The Exodus, right? Jesus got them out of Egypt, but then they didn't want to go into the promised land. They were too afraid. Jesus destroyed them, remember? They dropped like flies until they were all gone and only those who were 20 years old and younger survived and went into the promised land. They proved themselves to be faithless, which means they were enemies of Christ, and he destroyed them. Secondly, and the angels, illustration number two, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Now, there's different ideas of what angels are being spoken of. Some believe it's the angels who defected with Satan. Others believe it's the angels that came and cohabitated with females on earth in uh, Genesis 6. Doesn't matter. The point is Christ dealt with his enemies, even if they were angelic. He put them in chains and they remain there until the final judgment. Third, look at what's next. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, likewise means just like these enemies of Christ I'm telling you about, just like them, these residents of Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desires, and served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They were destroyed by fire. Story of Lot, that's where it comes from. So what we're learning here is that Christ always deals with his enemies. Whether it's his own people, the Israelites, whether it's rebellious angels who rebelled against the authority of Christ, whether it's rebellious residents of Sodom and Gomorrah who thought they could live however they wanted and believe however they wanted, Jesus judged them. And mind you, it says Jesus did this here in verse 5. So the first thing we must do in understanding what will happen to the enemies of Christ is remember what happened, what he did to the enemies. Secondly, I want you to consider what will become of those who presently resist Christ. Look at verse 8 and 10. Yet in like manner, so this is how it's happening now, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, who are these folks again that, that Jude is referring to? Well, listen to the descriptions. Look at verses 8 and 10 again. They rely on dreams. These people that infiltrate the church, who come into the church to disrupt the saints and, and what we believe, rely on dreams. They say stuff like, God told me. You ever heard that? God said, uh, where did he say it? Well, he told me in a dream. He, I, I was sitting there on a log and I heard this voice. I'd say go get an exam, but they say, no, God told me. God told me, really. God told me that it's okay to get a divorce. It's okay to have sex in this case because of. It's okay to act or think in a way that is contrary to Scripture because God told me. Is God really going to tell you something that's contrary to Scripture? No. God didn't tell you. You want that. And so you're trying to justify what you want by saying to me that God told me. Uh, growing up in South America, the only way to, in, in Ecuador, when I was a youngster, the only way to get to a mission outpost in the jungle, Amazon jungle, was to fly from Shalmeta, uh, a dr drivable outpost, into places that were not drivable. You either hiked for five days or 
and, and die most likely, or you get in a little Cessna and fly in there. And I remember once I was standing next to my dad and he was talking to the pilot and this guy walks up and he says, hey, God told me to tell you to fly me to Makuma, this little outpost. And <laughs> the pilot who was an MAF pilot said, well, when God tells me, I'll fly you there. <laughs> that ought to be our response to enemies of Christ. When God tells me it's okay for you to divorce your wife, I'll agree with you. Not before. Secondly, look at verse 11. He says, woe to them. Woe to these that are enemies of Christ. This is the same thing that Jesus said about false teachers. Woe to you. Remember the seven woes? Yeah. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Outer darkness, or utter darkness, Jude says, is reserved for these folks. That's how God's going to deal with present enemies, the same way he dealt with past enemies. Look at more of Jude's descriptions here in verses 11 through 13. And we see that they walked in the way of Cain. How did Cain walk? Prideful independence. God said, I want you to bring an innocent animal and sacrifice it. And Cain goes, no, I'm going to bring grapes. That's what I'm growing. Abel can bring animals. He's a, he's a rancher. I'm a farmer. I'll bring grapes. He can bring animals. And God says, I'm sorry, Cain, that's not how it works. The, the error of Cain. They, they, they're pridefully independent, these enemies of Christ. Um, then they also made Balaam's error. What, remember the story of Balaam? He was asked to curse the people of Israel, and he was a prophet of Israel. He was asked to curse the people of Israel, and he did so because of greed, because he was going to be paid. Prideful greed. And then they died in Korah's rebellion. Remember Korah? He was actually a cousin of Moses, and he rebelled against Moses' authority, God-given authority to Moses. And Korah says, oh, we don't want to follow Moses anymore. He's not doing how we would do it. We want to do it a different way. And God says, Moses, stand back. Opened up the earth and Korah and all those who were following him, up to 14,700 people, went in to this crevasse and they died there. What are we calling that? Prideful insubordination to God's appointed authority and leadership. So... They walked in the way of Cain, they made Balaam's heir, and they died in Korah's rebellion, all based on pride. Next we see, look at verse 12, these enemies of Christ are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Fear of God, meaning, that's what he means. Uh, they're, they're Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of, their, of, the gloom, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, what are these things? Well, hidden reefs, you can, you can see that picture in your mind, can't you? A hidden reef is something that destroys ships. It destroys churches. They're hidden reefs. They're dangerous. Self-feeding shepherds. They really don't have any concern for the body. That's a problem. Waterless clouds. 
They have all sorts of empty promises. But do it this way and you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. You'll have better insight. You'll be enjoying life more if you do this or do that. But they're empty promises of refreshment. In fact, he goes on to say they're fruitless and uprooted trees. They're twice dead. They're unsaved, condemned by God. These folks, wild ways foaming up. You, you can picture that in your mind about an enemy of Christ. Just thrashing back and forth and it's just all you see is foam and dirt and sticks and seaweed. They, they're causing discontent, disunity, false doctrine, stirring up the sea. Wandering stars, it's, it's, it's not like stars don't have orbits, they do, but he's talking here about shooting stars. Like, you're out sitting out, like, oh, look at that. That's exactly how we respond to some enemies of Christ. They have some uh, gregarious personality or, you know, the intellect is above average, and it impresses us. We go, oh, look at that guy. It's a shooting star that ends at where? In darkness. <laughs> Here today, gone tomorrow. Showing up like a bright light in the, star, in the sky and then disappearing. And what do we say about these things? Just wait. Don't burn out. Don't burn out. We've seen it all the time, haven't we? Pastors who come in, even in this town, make a big splash. Pretty important for a couple of years, and then pfft, out they go. Wild ways, foaming up, wandering stars that disappear into darkness. What do we do with this? How are we supposed to deal with this, these things? We're, we're talking about the second point. Remember how Christ dealt with his enemies in the past? Consider what will become of those who presently resist them, and, and then our response, resist the urge to take matters into your own hands. You, you might be tempted to let them have it, to go give them a piece of your mind, or more, or a piece of the front side of your knuckles, something like that. But look at verse 9 and how even Michael, the archangel, responded to an enemy of Christ. And here's, here's the direction for you. But when the archangel Michael, in other words, the greatest angel in God's army, when the archangel Michael was contending, there's a key word, contending with the devil, Lucifer, he was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord will take care of you. The Lord rebuke you. So what are we saying? This doesn't mean that we're not to call a spade a spade or address error in the church or allow any kind of abuse within the church to continue. No, Jude is not saying that. I am not saying that. But we are to sit and be patient and follow the biblical instruction for dealing with these things. For example, Romans 12, 9. <clears throat> Beloved, Paul says, never avenge yourself. So if an enemy of Christ has offended you personally, it's not your job to avenge yourself or defend yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to God, be patient. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. 
What else are we supposed to do? Let the process play out. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord's appointed leaders. And then the appointed leaders, according to 1 Peter 5, 2, are to shepherd the flock of God. Acts 20, verses 29-31, protect the flock of God. First and Second Timothy and Titus, all of those books, the shepherds are to teach, to encourage, to rebuke, to correct, to train, to model. That's how we deal with enemies of Christ. Let God take care of it. And he does, every time. We can be certain of that. Christian friends, we have, we have the church under attack today as much or more than it was in Jude's day. We have those within the church trying to upend the church. You don't have to go too far on the internet to find these folks. And I'm not recommending you do, by the way. It's part of my job to protect you. I'm saying stay away from those things. But they're there, and I'm sure many of you are aware of their presence, uh, who are saying things that just are opposed to the gospel, (laughs) that are untrue. And if it's untrue, it makes them enemies of Christ. And if they're enemies of Christ, what? They're devoid of the Spirit. So friends, we have clear direction as a church, as individual Christians, by Jude, on how to navigate the troubled waters that we find ourselves in as a church and as individual Christians within the church. I want to thank God for that right now. Pray with me. Lord, we are grateful that you have inspired your writers of Scripture to speak to things that pertain to us, challenging things that many times we find ourselves uncertain how to respond. But here we thank you for this clear word from Jude, your half-brother, our brother in Christ, who was used by you to instruct us how to think in troubled times, how to respond to the enemies of Christ who are trying to upend us, trying to discourage us, trying to be um, used by the great enemy, Satan, to weaken our faith. But Father, we're, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit guiding us to this text, helping us think clearly about today, our world, our challenges. Father, I, I, I'm so thankful that you have protected Sun Valley Church from the assaults of the enemy. Thank you that you, even in times of hardship, have been faithful and guided us, protected us, restored us in so many ways and so many times. We are so grateful, thankful we're, we're your people, and we love being your people. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, who make us your people. Amen.